We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, open them up for Revelation chapter 3 this morning. I hope you guys are ready to learn today. How many of you guys take notes? Anybody? Go ahead. A couple of you guys lied to me so the numbers look a little better. Raise your hands. Um, I would uh, encourage you guys to take notes. And, and again, notes are not necessarily so that you're, you're coming up with your own encyclopedia of the Bible, although they are great. But really, it changes how you listen, how you learn. If you write some notes down, get yourself a little notebook. We have some in the lobby, too, or as gifts if you need one. Um, or you can, um, when you're not playing solitaire on your phone, you can turn it over to your note apps and take some notes there as well electronically. That's a good way. But you should have, or just write them right in your Bible. I use this New King James Version Wide Margin Bible, and they're hard to get, really. But I do all my write all my notes right in my Bible as well. Um, have I told you guys before that the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand? It's the only book that comes with its own divine outline. It says, write the things which were, that's chapters what? One. Everybody, chapters one. Write the things which are, that's chapters two and three. The things which will be after this, that's chapters four through 22. And with chapters five and six being the rapture and a scene in heaven chapter 6 through 19 is the chapter 6 through 19 is the tribulation or the great tribulation where god pours out his wrath on a christ rejecting world and he pours out his spirit upon israel and draws them back again to himself chapter 20 is the millennial reign or the thousand year reign of christ on earth, 21 and 22, a new heaven and a new earth. So again, the book of Revelation is really not. And if you use the divine outline that's given to us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, you can break it up. I think, you know, I, I do a little bit of study outside of our own Calvary Chapel teachers and theologians. And sometimes I want to hear what the other people are saying, you know. And I, I get some fuel for my sermons that way because those guys... They, 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 they sometimes will talk about Calvary Chapel, but they won't say Calvary Chapel. They'll say, you know, that movement that started in Orange County or those guys, all they talk about is rapture, rapture, rapture. And then he says rapture, it's like this, like, curse word. Rapture, 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 because rapture fills the seats. But that's not why we talk about rapture, rapture, rapture. We talk about rapture, 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 because it's in the Word. But I, I sometimes listen to what other people say. And um, so I want to show you guys, I got a couple slides this morning. So these are the seven churches of um, modern-day Turkey. But anyways, I'm sorry. I was going somewhere with that. Um, the, the, those that I find that have a hard time with the book of Revelation, usually it's a, it's a chronological issue or it's a timing issue. And they get the time and the years mixed up and, and jumbled. But listen, if you just keep it in that, in that time frame, you, you really can understand the book of Revelation. Now, if you get to chapter, say, 13, and you're reading about the mark of the beast, and you're reading about kind of ominous things, and, and locusts, and plagues, and sores, and boils, and people trying to die, and they can't, you know, maybe every one of the analogies that the book of Revelation uses, the typology that the book of Revelation has, maybe you don't get every one of them perfect or right, but you can know without a shadow of a doubt that if you're anywhere in Revelation 6 through 19, you're inside of the seven-year period of human history that, 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 that happens right after the rapture, the seven-year period of tribulation. 
So as I'm reading Revelation, chapter 1 is a description of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 is the church age. Where do you and I live? In the church age, we live in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 4, it starts by God saying to the church, come up here. And then in chapter 5, the church is in heaven. There's a picture of this heavenly scene. We'll get to it. And, and, and in heaven, this group of people that is there in heaven, they're singing a song to Jesus and thanking him for washing them in the blood and redeeming them by the blood of Jesus. Now, what other group can, can thank Jesus for being redeemed in the blood? Only the church. Only the church can sing this song. So in chapter 5, you have the church in heaven singing this song to Jesus. The bride of Christ is there in heaven. And then fascinating, in chapter 6, not one more mention of the church until you get to chapter 19 when Jesus comes with the church in the second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So the church disappears because we're not here for the seven years. And then 19 is the end of the seven-year tribulation that ends in a famous battle. We call that the Battle of Armageddon. You know, the Battle of Armageddon is not like Sending nuclear weapons to the moon to blow it up to save planet Earth. You know, <laughs> that was common. OK, um, so anyways, it's, it's really simple because it's Jesus fighting Satan. When Jesus fights Satan and the armies of Antichrist, who's going to win? Is it going to be like this epic heavyweight battle of the two contenders going blow for blow? No, one is God, the creator of heaven and earth and all that's in it. And the other one is a little peon that he created. It's kind of like an ant thing that he's going to step on. He's actually just going to open his mouth. He's not even going to get off his horse. He's, as, as his horse is coming to the battle of Armageddon, he's going to open his mouth. And the Bible says that his sword will come out of his mouth and that will be the end of it. That's the battle of Armageddon. And the birds of the air, he'll summon them from around the world to eat the flesh of the battles of the armies of Antichrist that will, that will be piled up there in the, in the Megiddo Valley during the battle of Armageddon. And that's chapter 19. When you get to chapter 20, it's a thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. It's called the millennium. And then in 21, he says, Behold, I, John, saw a new heaven and a Okay, is that Chinese? So this earth, Peter tells us, is going to go away. God destroyed the earth once with a flood. The next time he destroys the earth, he tells us in Peter it's going to be with a fire. I believe that thing we talked about on Wednesday night. Well, speaking of Wednesday night, we're studying through Daniel on Wednesday night. It goes hand in hand with Revelation. I would encourage you guys to come out for Bible study on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. It's family night. We have ministry for all ages, newborn to uh, get ready to to go see Jesus. Um, All ages. We have ministry for all ages. We're studying the book of Daniel. The first Wednesday of the month, we even give away free food to try to get you guys to show up. So this coming Wednesday will be the first Wednesday of the month. I think we're doing sub sandwiches. So come around 645 on Wednesday. If you you won't have to make dinner at home, you can come eat. Come eat and uh, join us Wednesday night as we study Daniel. So chapter 21, he says a new heaven and a new earth. This the heaven that that where where God resides currently and where um, is going to it says pass away and he's creating something new. He's going to create a new earth and a new heaven. And then we'll see in 21 and 22, we'll study what that's going to look like. Now, again, these churches, next slide, this is, this is modern day Turkey. And this is where the churches um, physically would have been. So these were seven literal churches that Jesus writes these seven letters to in Asia Minor. Today, that's modern day Turkey. In Paul's day, that was Asia Minor. Next slide. 
And then so the seven stages and ages of, of church history. So again, um, the, in every church, we've identified things. So they're all literal churches. They all existed. They all would have had a pastor, a leader, because Jesus said the seven stars are the seven messengers. Um, the seven um, lampstands are the seven churches, and Jesus is in the midst of the seven lampstands. And so they're literal churches. There were kinds of churches or types of churches, different types of churches. We looked at the, the, the martyred church, the church of the apostles, the loveless church, the, and everyone has a different mark that Jesus commends and, and, and corrects. And then they're all periods of church history. So they, they're dated, these churches, um, up to today what we call the modern churches. Um, and in every one of the seven churches, we have different kinds of believers and a remnant of every church still exists to this day. Now, again, you can go back to that map I just showed you of the seven literal churches, and, and there's historical remains of some of those actual churches that were there, but, but there's it represented in these seven churches. So it's the seven, um, say this with me, the seven stages and ages of church history. Okay, next slide. Okay, these are the timelines of the historical churches. So we had Ephesus. We studied that in chapter 2 from 33 to 100. What's significant about 33, AD 33? Some really important thing happened in AD 33. Anybody want to take a wild stab at it? Jesus died on a cross and rose again. So the church in Ephesus, and the church in Ephesus, by the way, is the only of the seven churches that was in the Bible and other places. That's the church that the apostles started um, John would have pastored that church. Timothy at a different time pastored that church. John wrote Revelation in about um, 90, is it 6? I got two numbers in my head, 92 and 96. It's right in there. Um, and then in 100, it began the persecuted church and that er, the church that the early church started and those 10 Roman emperors that Jesus said that they for 10 um, times would be persecuted and millions of Christians died in that century from 100 to 300 as the different 10 Roman um, emperors would, would gain power and take over and different um, Roman emperors in that 10 would have different levels of hatred towards the Christians. And that brings us to 312, the church of Pergamos. So what happened in 312 that changed the age of, of persecution? There was a law passed in 313 um, by a guy, by a, the, the 10th Roman emperor, by the, guy, by the name of Constantine. And, and it was called the Edict of Toleration. And, and it began to make Christianity the, the, the um, recognized religion. It stopped the persecution that went on for hundreds of years. Constantine, um, Constantinople was the capital of Christianity for a long, long time. And it was named after Constantine. Constantine, I told you guys, he was the Roman general who claimed to have had an epiphany and, a, and, an, and an encounter with Christ, and he gave his life to Jesus, and, um, and he incorporated the Christians. He made persecution of the Christians illegal, and then he married. The word Pergamos is two Greek words, per, where we get our word perverted, or um, per, anything that starts with per, and then gamos is where we get our word like polygamy, monogamy, it means marriage. And so it's perverted or objectionable marriage. And what happened in 313 is the church married with the world. And so many of the holidays that you and I, stud, that you and I celebrate today, you might have some friends that understand and they might, might challenge you that all oh, you celebrate Christmas, but that's 
actually a pagan holiday. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Easter is a pagan holiday. And that's all true. Those things have their pagan roots. It happened in this point when, when Constantine married the church to the world, an objectionable marriage. And he just took the pagans and the Christians and he said, hey, let's just all get along and we'll take what you guys believe and what you guys believe. And, and they merged it together. Now, we, we, we celebrate all of those holidays, Easter and Christmas. And um, Easter is actually um, authentic to the time that Jesus rose on the grave, but the celebrations that go with it are pagan in their roots. But we, we, don't, we have uh, Christmas trees, which is very pagan. But the Christmas tree to us represents the cross of Christ, and we don't worship the pagan things. We're worshiping Jesus and not those things, and so we've used those things. But anyways, in 606, the change was, and around this time, it didn't only become the edict of toleration, but a new edict came through. And this time, it wasn't just tolerating Christianity, but now Christianity was going to be forced upon the world. And that's where the crusaders and and those that went in the name of Christ and murdered you if you weren't a Christian, you know, and and, and again, that had nothing to do with Christ. And that was never Christ's evangelistic program. Some of you guys would kind of like that program today, right? I can see some of you vigilante. I see some of you men, you know, you got a 45 on each hip and you're like, receive Jesus. (laughs) Or you're going to meet him. (laughs) You know, somebody's like, I'll do that ministry, AKs, you know, and. M15 AR15s and but anyways they 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 began and what was born in 606 was the Holy Roman Catholic Church and from 606 to 1517 the the Catholic Church for a thousand years dominated the Holy Roman Catholic Church and I want to be specific that's where it was born it was born out of Rome it was born out of starting with the edict of toleration which came into Um, I forget what the second edict was called in 616 that forced Christianity on everybody. But again, through that, the Holy Roman Catholic Church was given great power. And for a thousand years they reigned, I mean, on planet Earth. And and, and the extents of the Catholic Church, now some good and, and, and much bad that took place through the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And we've already dealt with that. And the perversion that took place when the Holy Roman Catholic Church was so powerful. And the things got away from the Bible, and they got away from what the Word of God teaches. Well, in 1517, we have a famous um, guy by the name of Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest in Germany. And, and he was really just taken back. He had access to a Word of God. He was able to read the Word, which was very unique. And, and he just was really upset with the Catholic Church selling indulgences. And so what, what they were doing um, in, that, in that time is that if you wanted to go sin, um, you just come and you pay the church a certain amount, and then you go to Vegas and you, your sins are prepaid. Indulgences. And, and Martin Luther had such a hard time with these indulgences. And as he began to read the word, he, um, I said this last week, I didn't quote it right, so I wrote it down this week, but um, Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, um, in October of 1517, Martin Luther nailed to the, the doors of the church his, well, what's famously known as his 95 Thesis, or 95 objections that he came up to with Holy Roman Catholic doctrine. And from this was born the, what do we call that? The what? The Reformation. And the Reformation age was born. And, and then the battle began between the Catholic Church and the Reformationists. Um, the Jesuit um, wing was born out of that, and Jesuits were, were raised up through the Catholic Church to battle against 
um, the reformers and those who were trying to get back to the Bible. And there was began to be an explosion of, of getting the word in people's hands and men like Wycliffe and um, had began to try to translate the Bible into languages and, and growing. And so <laughs> 15 to 1750, we have um, Protestantism is born. Now, the word Protestant, um, if you spell it out, what, what's the prefix for Protestantism or Protestant? It's protest because they were protesting what? The Holy Roman Catholic Church and the, and the evils that were taking place within it. And so the Protestant Reformation was born. Now, I told you guys last week, if you had a Catholic background and I picked on it a little bit, today I'll pick on the rest of you and your Protestants in here. Because what happens is the Protestant Church... Um, Jesus really has nothing good to say about it. We're going we're gonna to study it and read it today. They are um, the dead denominational churches that exist all over the world and all over the United States today. Empty buildings full of, of days past. Um, we'll get into it. The dead uh, denominational and the dead Reformation churches. And then um, from Sardis in 1750, we have the one church where Jesus has nothing negative to say about him, the church of Philadelphia, the church that we want to be, the church that we want to emulate. And these last two churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea, we call these the end time churches. And they are probably um, alive and, and, and as well today. Now, remnants, like I said, of all these churches, um, types of all these churches remain. But physically, we have today on planet Earth, the church of Philadelphia, and not in its, its location, but the spirit of Philadelphia and Laodicea. And we'll get some warnings. Laodicea became the lukewarm church. Philadelphia was the church of the open door. And in 1750, um, there was the first great awakening. And, and the gospel began to be spread all over the world. And, and world missions became a deal. And, and there was men, um, oh, geez, I'm drawing a blank now. The guy who rode over 100,000 miles on his horse preaching the gospel. It's going to come right back to me in a second. Um, but all of the different missionaries and, and, and world missions and, and things that were going on, and the preachers of the great, Charles Finney, who was doing revival services, and he would come to a town, and when he would leave, they would close the bars down because there would be no more patrons. They would close the um, uh, courthouses down because there would be no more crime to, to, to try. And, and, and there was these great awakenings that were happening around the world and, and um, eventually came to the United States. You know, this church was born out of a, out of a great awakening or a uh, revival, as we call it. In order for something to be revived, revived, it has to be vived in the beginning, to be revived. So if somebody's just getting saved for the first time, that's more of an awakening. But a, a revival, we call it, we often call it revival, which is okay. We understand what we're talking about, but it's a great awakening. But in the late 60s, as the United States was in its hippie stage and Woodstock was um, at its peak and, and much of the United States was either in, you know, headed to Vietnam or, or coming out of the hippie stage. God did an amazing work here in the United States called the Jesus Movement. And, and they were baptizing a thousand people a week um, at, at the beaches in Orange County. And, and through this, this movement, Calvary Chapel was just one single church at the time. It, it, it exploded and other evangelical churches came out of that Revival. Well, much of that happened during this stage of Philadelphia. Now, you notice Laodicea, we put 1900 to tribulation because some of the remnant of Laodicea, they will go into the tribulation if they don't repent. We'll read about that when we get to the lukewarm church. Well, I think I got one more. Or is that the last one? One more. 
Okay, we did this already. We covered this. This is the end times events. That's just laid out there. We have Jesus' resurrection 40 days later. We have his ascension, so he rose from the grave. 40 days later, the disciples watch him ascend to heaven, and that begins the church age. We're in the church age now. The church age ends with what? The church age ends with what? Was that clear? Very good. Okay, the rest of you that are still looking at me sideways, the answer is the rapture. The church age ends with what? The rapture. Okay, so we go up. How long are we in heaven before we come back down on a horse? Seven years. We're there in the, for the, um, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then Jesus' second coming is in Revelation, recorded in Revelation 19. The seven-year tribulation, it's Revelation 6 through 19. Revelation 20, 1,000-year reign, 20 and 21, new heaven, new earth. Now you guys are all experts on the book of Revelation. So again, like I said, you know, um, the only time I, I really see him when I've listened to the, there's, there's a guy, and I'm not going to call him out by name because I love him. He's, he's, he's a Baptist denominational pastor. Um, I, I call him one of the young guns. He, he's such a great communicator of God's word. And I listen to his stuff all the time. And I picked him up on Revelation the other day, and a couple weeks ago actually, and it was so bad. It was so terrible. And this guy's a way better preacher than I am. He's got a big, huge church. And, but he really struggled, and he just couldn't get through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so what he did was he just picked eight messages, pull-out messages that he was going to do through Revelation. I only got through about one and a half of them before I was like, can't handle anymore. Because he was so afraid just to, you know, and he had his timing all messed up and all the symbology was he was telling. Basically, his whole message was, it was daunting. It was like, yeah, Revelation is so scary and the beasts and you can never understand what they mean. And then 20 minutes why God uses typology instead of just anyways. But, but I think, again, the, what I'm saying is that the problem comes and where it becomes difficult to understand Revelation is if you get your timeline out of order. So just go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, and just use the divine outline. And if you keep it in those divine time frames, you won't get, um, you won't get off on, on left field or, the, or that's those things. Okay, Revelation chapter 3, I got them. Revelation chapter 3. So this is the dead, the dead church. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, dead. Okay, so the, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So every one of the seven letters in the book of Revelation starts with some description of Jesus, every one unique. So in this particular um, description of himself, it says he is the one that holds the seven, um, the seven spirits of God. Now, I don't want to confuse anybody. How many Holy Spirits are there? One. Now, we, we believe here in, um, doctrinally, I guess, in a, in a doctrine called the doctrine of the Trinity, where God is three in one. That there's not three gods, it's one God. The, the very mantra of Israel and of the Old Testament to this day is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, is one. And that's the, the, the plural form of Echad, is one. Our Lord is one. But no way in it, and I've seen some guys that get the doctrine of the Trinity mixed up, and before you know it, they actually becomes multiple gods in the Godhead. But there's one God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is one God in three parts called the Trinity. Now, we try to use things to help explain the Trinity, and I don't think it's very helpful, but I'll give them to you anyways. One of them would be like an egg. An egg has a yolk, a white, and a, and a shell. 
and it's one egg. Um, water can be a liquid, a solid, or a gas, and it's, it's singular. I, I like, um, because we're made, you are made in what? I can hear some of you like worship singers like, in the image of God. Like sing. Um, we're made in the image of God, but if you died here today, your flesh remains on the, on the ground, right? And what leaves? Okay, now, now you're how many? That's two, so your body, spirit, and then soul, and that would be your mind, your personality. Everybody's born with a little different personality, a different mind. And so in ourselves, since we're created in the image of God, um, I can prove two right off the bat. The third one you have to just believe, right, the mind, body, and soul. But, um, but you can see how you're two in one at least and three in one, and yet you're not three people, right? And so God, again, and, and, and God's ways are higher than ours and, and beyond finding out at times and things. So, but we believe in this triune God. The, Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. They're three in one. And so here we have this kind of confusing deal because it says the seven um, spirits of God. Well, there's not seven Holy Spirits of God. There's one. And so the way we understand this in Isaiah, in chapter 11, in verse 2, it gives us the, the seven manifold um, ministries of or expressions of the Holy Spirit. I, I'll read it to you just for some context. It's in 11.2, and it says in Isaiah 11.2, I've read it already once in an earlier study. It says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And so you get seven different aspects of the Holy Spirit. And so here in Revelation, Jesus is definitely speaking of the sevenfold manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Now, in biblical numerology, the number seven means, anybody know? Completion or perfection. So number of perfection or completion, same idea. And so that the Holy Spirit is perfect and he's complete. And, and then he says, um, the sevenfold spirits of God and the seven stars what are the seven stars? If you forgot, go back to Revelation 1.20 and he tells you that the seven stars are the seven churches and then the seven, um, I'm sorry, the seven stars are not the seven churches. The seven stars are the messengers or the pastors or the leaders of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so, um, and Jesus holds those things and he says he has those things. Then he says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, these, these type of churches, I believe they exist today all over the United States. And I, and I think there's one key factor in, in every one of them. And, and it's really simple because Jesus started with it in his description. And, and he starts by telling them, listen, I have the Holy Spirit. He's going to go on and he's going to tell them, I have, um, in the other church, the keys of David, which is to open doors and close doors. And so Jesus is the one who, who manifests, who gives, who, who the Holy Spirit follows, who the Holy Spirit uses. And, and what these churches lack that Jesus is talking to is the move of the Holy Spirit. And for one, for one reason or another, they have become dead. And you know, there's plenty of churches um, for different reasons that, that could function for a long time and nothing would change without the Holy Spirit. Whether it be they're just skilled. You know, with money, you can do a lot of things. And we see some churches and they hire the best speakers and they have big, huge budgets and they hire the best musicians and they have the best buildings and they have the most expensive aesthetics and stuff going on and light show and fog machines and 
and speakers and musicians and entertainment and 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 yet they won't teach the word of God and they have a an outward appearance that they're alive but yet they are dead because the Holy Spirit is not moving in this place and the place is being moved and generated by the hoopla and by the the finances and by the the you know just the machine and the skills of the people and it's very it's very possible I see it happen all the time. It's very possible that you can get very talented in ministry. You can get talented in speaking and public speaking. And, and again, they're not teaching the Word of God. They may be teaching a passage or using the Bible as a springboard, but they're definitely not teaching the Word of God in its context. And so these churches are dead. The other thing is that, you know, in these denominational churches, you know, and again, we, we name names with the Catholic Church, so I might as well keep it up. But, you know, the churches that were born in 1750 with the Reformation, um, um, I'm sorry, in the 1500s with the Reformations, and then in that age was, you know, the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, the Lutheran Church, um, the Wesleyan Church, the Baptist Churches, and many of those those denominations, the Presbyterian, I get them mixed up sometimes, the Presbyterian, the Methodist Church, but I believe it's the Methodist Church who, you know, their council of elders and leaders a couple years ago came out and said that the Word of God is not the inspired, infallible, authoritative Word of God. And they began to um, um, ordain gay and and lesbian um, leaders and clergy in their church. And they're, they're, they're gay and lesbian affirming in their church because they'll say things like the Bible is a 2,000-year-old document. It's an ancient document. Woo! I'm pretty sure the Word of God is alive and living and sharper than a two-edged sword. And you better watch out because it'll cut you. It'll make you smile. That's what my uncle used to say when I had a little pocket knife. He'd give me a pocket knife and he'd say, yeah, that'll make you smile. I guess when I was robbing somebody with a little pocket knife my uncle gave me, yeah, they were supposed to make me smile. But So these churches and these movements that, that one time were um, alive and well, and, and, and they came out again of the Holy Roman Catholic Church and the problems, and, and many of them made so much reformation and change, but they didn't go far enough. And they, and they and they again kind of like with Pergamos where they were objectionable marriage they kind of married some of Catholicism with um, the the new stuff and and but yet didn't go far enough you know what the world is full of today I just got an update from Jeremy Barry he's one of our missionaries in Serbia and him and his wife they're in their apartment and they're sitting out on their balcony and behind them is this big huge Anglican church it's got these big three crosses and golden top and this big huge building. And on Sunday morning, there's nobody there. And there's nothing going on there. And that thing exists all over the world. Two of my friends, pastors, are working with a ministry here in the United States called Transformation Ministries. Um, um, pastor Monty, who's been here many several times, he helps some of our construction work, and he's the pastor of NCIC, New Creation in Christ, our men's discipleship drug and rehab program that we use here. Monty, who was doing that program forever, was working with Transformation Ministry, and there was a church that, that had this big building and parsonage and all these things and no people. They just had died, denominational church. And so they placed him in this church, and he began to pastor this church and breed more life and begin to teach the Word, and that's what Transformation Ministries does. They're placing pastors in buildings all over the place. Another one, actually next Wednesday, or this Wednesday, this Wednesday Jordan will be here, and he's been a part of Transformation Ministries. You guys are going to meet him. He was a young man at CBI. 
He went to the Calvary Bible Institute about four years ago. He graduated, and he's been working and pastoring, and he was with Transformation Ministries and sent to a church in Taft. This one happened to be an old Baptist church, again, that had this big building and all this stuff, but has just died over the years, and nobody's in it. And so they're breathing, they're trying to breathe new life into some of these dead denominational churches all over the nation um, that are there. And then he says in verse number two, be watchful. So now look at your neighbor and say, look out. No, let's do it right. Look at your other neighbor and say, watch and pray. Hey, when, when, when the Bible says, or when I say, or when we say watch and pray, I want you guys, I think it's really, this is really important. Look, this is like my whole talk earlier about like my one, uh, my one trick pony is, is relationship with Jesus. Listen, this is important. When it comes to biblical prophecy, when it comes to end times, the instructions that Jesus gave us were was two things that are very important. Watch and pray. That's what Jesus said. Luke twenty one thirty six. He just got giving got through giving the all of it discourse, and then he's going to tell you what to do, and what he says is watch and pray. So whenever you see that, and Jesus uses those terms, watch and pray, he's, it's, it's in context of end times. Now, I'll tell you one of the things the reformers didn't do. Martin Luther wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except for one. You want to take a wild guess which one? Book of Revelation. Unfortunately, with Martin Luther and, and, and a lot of these reformers that came in those years in the 15, 1600s, they became anti-Semites. And they, they couldn't reconcile the Jews who had rejected Christ and, and that they were still God's chosen people. And so they started replacement theology, which is demonic and it's evil. And so you, here you have reformers who on one hand are doing something amazing and being used by God to, to break away from the evils of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. But yet in their minds, they're struggling with, and many of them, became and got into replacement theology and started really replacement theology. And what they decided was everywhere where God promises something for Israel, that that promise is now for the church and not for Israel. Well, if God is going to promise you something, and then, and then six months later, a year later, a thousand years later, he's going to remove that promise from you, is God trustworthy? No, he's not. And if God's going to remove a promise that he gave the Jews then how can we believe that he's going to keep the promises that he made to us? He's not, because he's, he never removed his promises. His promises from the book of Genesis to today are valid and have never been rescinded. And the Bible's pretty clear. Listen up. God says, I will bless those that bless thee, and I will curse those that curse thee. You want a blessing of God? Bless Israel. Bless God's people. Bless a Jew. Because the Bible is clear, and that, that promise of God has not been rescinded you know whose side i'm on when it comes to the israeli-palestinian conflict i'm on israel's side boldly and proudly and and i have a good friend i grew up with i don't know i'll be careful calling him a good friend i have a friend that i've known since uh, about the ninth grade and we still talk and he's very liberal and and he's telling me you you can't just think the jews are right in this conflict just because the bible says so and I was like, well, actually, I can. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm pretty sure I could take you back thousands of years and see the Jews were there thousands of years before that. And it's definitely God's, uh, God's people. And then in verse number, so anyways, verse number two, be watchful. Now, okay, I do, I do want to finish this. 
one of the things that, that happened in this dead church, and one of the things, now again, they didn't start dead. They couldn't start if they were dead. They, they became dead. But they became anti-Semitic. That was one thing. The other thing that really happened in, in, in dead denominationalism is, they, is that Martin Luther would not write a commentary because not only himself, but many of them, they didn't want to deal with biblical prophecy. They didn't understand it. It was, again, difficult to understand. In their context, you can get it, right? If it's 1600, there's not even a nation of Israel. So many things that we now have information to, the mark of the beast, and all the information that we have in 2021 that makes things so much easier to understand. They didn't have any of that context, and so they didn't like biblical prophecy, and they just ignored it. And so Jesus here is saying, be watchful, which, again, is... is a sign of biblical prophecy to watch and pray. Strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die. For I have not found your works to be perfect before God. Therefore, remember how you have re- I'm sorry, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So the rapture, it's going to be alluded to twice. Listen, once here and once um, in the next church. And the the one in the next church is one of the the greatest rapture texts that we have. And it's unfortunate. I don't hardly ever go to it. But I'm glad we're studying it and we'll get to it today. But again, he says that to remember, to repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief in the night. Have you guys ever, like the Bible says that Jesus will come as a thief in the night, right? But listen, we have to understand something really important biblically about that. He will not come as a thief in the night for Christians. In the context of what that's talking about and what this, this is talking about is it will come as a surprise to the Christ-rejecting world. It will come as a surprise to those who are not ready. Didn't Paul say, doesn't the Bible say it so many different places and times that you, you have no need that I write to you, brethren, of the times and the seasons, because you already know. You, you won't know the day and the hour, but of the times and seasons, you shall know. So, so as believers, it's not going to take us as a thief in the night. We, we know the times and the seasons. And when, when they say peace and safety, and we'll get to it in First Thessalonians when I get to the rapture verse in the next chapter. But again, this is a warning for them. Who, who didn't want to deal with end times. They didn't want to deal with prophecy. And so he tells them, again, these terms. And, and then he says, it will come upon you as a thief. And so, again, those that don't know Christ. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. But we do know. You have um, a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Now, listen, I think this is super important. When, when I say, for example you know, the, the evils of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. I hope you understand that I'm not for one second saying that everybody who attends a Holy Roman Catholic Church is evil. That's not what we're saying, okay? Now, here Jesus says, look, look what he says. Remember what I did read? Make sure we're catching this in context. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, verse 4, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So they're a part of the dead church that Jesus has nothing good to say about, but yet he wants to make a distinction that there are individuals in this denomination or in this church who love Jesus and and who are right on. And so in every denomination, I believe, 
in every walk of life. They're, they're saved people based on personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the opposite is true. If, you have, if you're a part of a spirit-filled Bible-teaching church where God's spirit is moving, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is on fire for God and that everybody was walking with Christ. You may have dead denomination. You may have people here that are here for the wrong reasons or just have a hardened heart towards God or just haven't received the Lord in their life. But again, every one of these churches, you guys, every one of these um, um, scenarios that we're talking about, there's always a remnant. There's always an opportunity for those to have a personal and a strong relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believe there are those, you know, even in some of these churches that are, that are going away from the Bible, that are um, ordaining gay and lesbian ministers and, and gay and lesbian affirming in their churches, that there's people that are there that love Jesus. And, and that, you know, and, and they may be in the wrong spot, but they have a good heart and they love Jesus. And so God, God recognizes that that he's not taking the entire thing and throwing it away. And then he says, He who overcomes, verse 5, shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Listen, you want Jesus to confess your name before his Father and the angels. Now here he says, I will blot his name out of the book of life. Now, now there's seven times the book of life is mentioned here in the Bible. Uh, in, I'm sorry, just in the book of Revelation. There's several other times in the New Testament and in the Old Testament where the book of life is mentioned. Lots, the Bible has actually lots to say, lots of mentions of this thing called the book of life. The one thing that, that I think is one of the most important verses, we'll get to it in Revelation 20, and he says, all those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. So if your name's not in the Lamb's book of life, the Bible is super clear you're going to go to hell for eternity. But, but here he says, I will blot their names out. And I think one of the things that you find without going to all the verses and really getting too deep into this study today is that it would seem like the book of life has everybody's name written in it that's born because it's a book of life. And so when life happens, a name gets recorded in the book. And then when you die without Jesus, your name is blotted out. And so again, I, I think it's semantics and really honestly how God manages his book of life it's not important, theologically, doctrinally. When you get saved, he adds your book to the name, to, or he adds your name to the book. Or when you, when you reject him, he takes your name out. What does it matter, right? But I think the case, I think if you studied it and you went and Googled or you went and um, you know, looked up every place in the Bible where you found the term book of life and did some research for yourself, I think, and what conclusion I came to was that it, 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 there's more verses that make it sound like everybody's name gets put in the book and then when you sin, when you remember Moses, Moses was sincere in his heart and he was interceding for the rebellious people of Israel. And he said to God, he said, God, if you can save them, then I will gladly let you blot my name out of the book of life. Moses asked God to trade him his salvation so that God would save the Jews. Now, God's like, uh, Moses, it don't work that way. That's, that's noble of you, Moses, but it don't work that way. Life don't work that way. And, he said, and then God says this to Moses. He said, those that sin against me, their names I blot out of the Lamb's book of life. Okay? And so, you know, because some people want to argue here that this is talking about losing your salvation. And, you know, that, that's not even included in this, in this argument really here. We can have that argument in Hebrews and in other places in the Bible. Um, 
I personally don't believe you can lose your salvation. I believe you can leave it. I believe you can walk away from it, but I don't believe you can lose it. Like your car keys or your wallet, you don't lose it, but you can consciously make a choice to rebel against God in your heart. You can leave God. And then it says, (coughs) what's cool about verse 5 is he's encouraging those that overcome. Verse 5 says, he who overcomes. Now, um, and then the reward is that he's going to confess them. Their name will be in the book of life. So if your name is not blotted out, your name is in the book of life, where do you go? You go to heaven. So in verse 5, we have heaven as a reward. Now listen, heaven is always a great reward. You know, Jesus is there, but honestly, it it is encouraging to us. And And I know we just want to have a sincere heart that we just want to serve Jesus and do things because we love Jesus. But I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say that heaven is a real reward. It's, it's a real motivator that, that, that heaven is a real place and we're going to go there. And Jesus uses it as such. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you guys have an ear? How many of you guys have two? Okay, so, but we understand what that means, right, in its context. It means he who has a willing heart to receive. That's what it means. Has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, that is at all seven churches. So in every one of these, we can make personal application in our own lives to the things of these churches to become uh, more like Jesus and, and, and more in line with the way we're supposed to follow Jesus. And then chapter 7. Now, this is the faithful church, the Church of Philadelphia. This is the winning church, the good church. This is the one we want to be. The word Philadelphia means brotherly love. And supposedly in the actual Philadelphia it was called that because there was two brothers that founded the city and they loved one another and they named it Brotherly Love. Now, we have a Philadelphia here in the United States, not to be confused with this. The Philadelphia, I was just there. I went to, I went to a Phillies game while I was there and I watched the Phillies and Red Sox. And uh, Phillies got beat up. But when I was in Philly, it was not Brotherly Love. It was more like Brotherly Shove. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was kind of like, it was crazy there. They, they got a place there. That we can pray for a place called Kensington. I, oh man, I can't get into it. But it's a, it's a, it's a place where all the heroin addicts go, and the police don't mess with them. And it's like Skid Row, in L.A., but only like, I, I can't even explain a hundred times worse. Like, I don't even have context to describe what takes place in this, in this place, um, in in Philadelphia. But anyways, here, neither here nor there. So Philadelphia means brotherly love. Now, again, what what is your number one context as a Christ follower? What is your number one call of God as a Christ follower is to love God Jesus said greatest commandment right is what love the Lord your God with all your heart mind and soul love your neighbor as yourself right listen if you're doing Christianity and it's not listen to me if it's not manifesting itself and you becoming a more loving person we're doing it wrong okay it has to manifest itself that way because that is the very essence of Christianity it's the very heart of who we are as Christ followers. And so, so becoming and, 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 and gaining a love for God first and a love for God's people. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse number 9, it's, but concerning brotherly love or concerning Philadelphia, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Hey, are you guys taught in this church to love one another? Some of you? Okay, because I'm, I'm a bad pastor if the answer is not yes. Like you should be being taught in the church you go to that our goal is to love one another. 
you know, look at the person next to you that's not related to you and say, I love you. Some of you are afraid to do that. Okay. You love them in Christ. You don't love them in a weird way. We agape each other. Say, I love you to one another. We love each other. We love each other in Christ. And we got to love across the aisles. Okay. Um, I'm out of time, you guys. I only got a couple more minutes. We have communion today. But I want to finish. So I, I got to skip some of the stuff, but I'll just tell you this. No, I'm not going to skip it all. I'm going to skip Romans 12.10. You can write that down. Um, Jesus said a new commandment I give you that you love one another, right? Jesus said by this they will know you are my disciples. Buy your Christian t-shirts that say something cool on them. They, Jesus said by this all men will know you're my disciples. Buy your Jesus bumper sticker. As you're, as you're flying the number one sign out the window, you're number one. With your Christian bumper stickers, is that how people know that you're, you're, you're a Christ follower? How do people, what is the one thing that, that, that people will know you're a Christ follower? What does the Bible say? By your love one for another. So again, you know, it's something we've got to seek the Lord for. I don't think any, maybe you guys are, but I'm not naturally a, just a loving person. I, it's something I have to work on. It's something I have to seek God for something I have to grow in and, and ask God to help me through. And then he says, um, these things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. Don't do it, Diane. Who has the keys of David and he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So the first mark of the, the, the church that God has nothing bad to say about is the church of the open door. And then he says, he has the keys of David. The keys of David, Isaiah 22, Isaiah 22, uh, I forget which verse. I think it's 22. Uh, Isaiah 22, 22, you can write that down. He talks about that he has the keys of David, and when he gives them to him, he can open doors and no man can shut them. Listen, the church here that, that we want to be is, is a missions-minded church that's going through open doors. But I want to break this down for us more, more deeper than that. What this means is that this church is being led by the, come on somebody, let me get like a Baptist preacher or something, Holy Spirit, it's better to say Jesus, well, the Holy Spirit should work that way too, but the Holy Spirit is, is, has to open and close doors, hey what has God called you to? What ministry are you to do? Where, where is God leading your life? You, you can't answer those questions apart from the Holy Spirit working in your heart and life. The Holy Spirit will open doors. But this is the church of the open door because I think what this means, and I think the, the key factor in this whole thing of David is, is open doors means that the Holy Spirit is still working and alive. It's not a dead denominational church where the Spirit of God is not alive and, and moving. And so in this church, they're a mission-minded church. And during this stage of Philadelphia, from 1750 to the present, again, the, the, the world missions exploded. We began to take the Word of God all over the world and mass-produce mass the Bible and to these things today. And they were the church of the open door. I know your works. Verse number 8. I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. And you have a little strength and you have kept my word. I can remember reading this at this church and thinking, man, we want to emulate. We want to be the church of Philadelphia. And, and they have a little strength. And I'm thinking, maybe that's a knock and that's a, that's a negative. Um, because the, the, the early church and Peter and those guys, man, when they laid hands on people, they were healed. 
And when they did certain things, there was power of the Holy Spirit that was moving um, in these in these churches. And Paul would raise the dead to life and, and on and on and on. But honestly, th- th- this is not a knock when he says you have a little strength. It's actually a commendation. It's something a positive. He's encouraging them that they, we do have a strength of the Holy Spirit. And, and I don't believe that you know, we're necessarily called to have or to be Peter or to be Paul. Those guys were very unique and the gifting they had was very unique. And if you read the book of Acts and you read the, um, the number of miracles over the amount of years that the book of Acts took place, it's very common. It's very similar to a local church. And we've seen miracles and they happen over the years. And in a 30 year span, we will, we are tracking with some of the things that are taking place in the book of Acts. You just read it chapter to chapter. You think like every five seconds, every service, 10 people are raised from the dead and healed from cancer. But it's not the case. It takes place over a long period of time. And I do think in spirit-filled churches, you are seeing these types of things where God does at certain times do certain miracles. And so this church was filled and they did have a little strength. And then it says that they kept his word. I told you guys about the Methodist church who has gone away from the word of God as being the final authority on church. You know, this church, and one of the things that we want to do as a church is you want to, we want to keep God's word. What does God's word say? Is God's word, a, you know, an ancient document? I heard a local pastor in Salt Lake City say, speaking of the Bible and talking to his congregation, and he said, I know it's an ancient document. And then he, and then he, and then he recommended 15 books that they could read that were supplemental because the Bible was an ancient document. Nah, yeah, don't bother with it. Here, read these books about the Bible. I'm not lying. I'm not making this up. That was the sermon. But listen, it, it, it is alive, and we need to keep the Word of God. And we've got to walk a fine line. I get it. We want to, you know, because God's first call was to love God and love people. So we love people. When we talk about sin, when we talk about these things, we, we don't hate the people. We love the people. Our hearts break for them. We want to see them. So how do you, on one hand, say, yes, these, these behaviors in your life are self-destructive and sinful. And they are again, and they do break the heart of God. But, but it doesn't mean that I hate you. I love you. And so finding that tactful line to keep the Word of God, not compromise. Our culture doesn't change the Word of God. The Word of God should change our culture. And Romans 1 is not going to be rewritten for anybody. And the debauchery that we live in in these days is evil, and it's, it's, it's bringing and going to usher in the return of Christ. And we have to stand. We have to stand on the Word of God in a way that's firm, but yet in a way that, that finds a way to reach people in our community and to love people through Jesus. Amen? I need a few more minutes, and then we're going to have the worship team come up. It says, Indeed, in verse number 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Now, that, that phrase is used a couple times to the letters. And, and just really quick, I've already talked about it. Um, those that say they're Jews but are not, they lie. Now, again, many people can say they do things in the name of Christ. You can have the appearance of Christ and yet not be filled with the Holy Spirit. The easy example I use all the time is the Crusaders. They put crosses on their shields and they went in the name of Jesus and murdered a bunch of people, but they were not Spirit-filled. They were not a part of God's remnant. They had nothing to do with Jesus or the Holy Spirit. And so that's the same thing here. Those that, that claim, but they lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. Okay, look at your neighbor and read the last part of verse 9. I have loved you. Isn't that pretty cool that Jesus tells this church, and again, doesn't this is the church that we want to be, I have loved you? You know, when I, when I read that key of David, 
I, I thought, you know, I have to keep it in context. And the key of David in context, biblical context, is the key is to open doors that no man can shut. And God is going to open doors for the church of Philadelphia. And he's going to put opportunities before them. Some of you are going to be given open doors to step out in ministry. And we, we have those right here in our church who God has been calling and I've been counseling with. And they're going to step out very soon into, into some full-time ministries. And, and those are open doors that God has put. But when I think of the key of David as well, I think of um, David was, was a guy in the Old Testament, a king in the Old Testament, who was really this anomaly character in the Bible because he, on one hand, he's very sinful. And on the other hand, God says that he's a man after my own heart. One of the greatest compliments God gives any character in the whole Bible. And David has this intimate, deep relationship with God. When David prays and when David begins to worship God, spontaneously out of his heart blows this like amazing worship and, and intimacy with God. And he'll just get on his knees and God, the Spirit will touch him and he'll just begin to say things like, Oh, as the deer pants for water, how doth my soul pant for you, O God? He didn't read that out of the Psalms. He was making that up out of his heart. You guys pray that way out of your heart? This guy was so intimate with Jesus. And, and, and he just loved God. And I see that as a key of David in, in this church. And then here we have Jesus who just says to them, look, I love you. How many of you guys have heard Jesus say to you personally, intimately, I love you? It'll change your life. It will radically change your life when you hear Jesus say, I love you. When you know Jesus loves you and he's preparing a place for you. And so here he says, I love you. Go ahead and um, come on up, worship team, and let's close in a song as I finish these last couple of verses. And he says, because, verse 10, you have kept my command to preserve, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon you next Sunday. Oh, I just can't, you guys. I can't. Oh, that's going to get into the rapture. That is a rapture, rapture and a half verse tucked right into Revelation chapter 3. And if I start reading that and going on that, the worship team's legs will get tired before they start playing. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and remain seated for this part because we're going to receive communion as a family of believers as we sing this last song.